Well, I've only really been lost one time in my life. And I mean really lost. When I was in college, some of my friends and I got onto this kick where we would go spelunking or caving. And in the mountains uh, that, that go on the border between Virginia and West Virginia, um, there are actually quite a few really great caves that you can go and explore. Um, and so my, one of my friends got a list of the GPS coordinates of these various caves, and we decided that it would be a very, very wise thing to do to go and explore these caves. Now, when I talk about these particular caves along the border of Virginia, West Virginia, if you've ever been to one of the uh, Luray Caverns or Mammoth Caves or whatever, this is not that. <laughs> um, this, there's no lights. There's no steps. I mean, these are holes in the ground or in the side of a mountain that people don't normally go into for good reason. And uh, it's on someone's property. You go get permission and you go explore in this cave and people are not in there very often. And that's what we did. Um, I was in college, so it was, it was a thing that we did. So we, we found this, uh, this one particular cave and three of my friends and I went and explored this cave and we were doing really well for about two or three hours, having a great time, massive cave. And about hour three, we decided we need to find our way out. And that was very difficult. Um, so we ended up being in the cave for about seven hours total, and uh, we could not find our way back to the entrance, and it was getting very frustrating. Our water was running out, our headlamps we were worried about the batteries running out and everything. Uh, obviously, we made it out, but it was, uh, it was a little bit of a harrowing experience. Um, maybe the worst part was I called my parents when we got out and was like, hey, we're okay, and they're like, we didn't even think anything of it. <laughs> we... <laughs> We're like, oh, great. We would have been in there all night before you guys came and looked for us. Now, if someone would have given us, if we had a, a map of that cave, of the tunnel system, or a blueprint, let's say, of the tunnel system when we went in, obviously it would have made things quite a bit easier. Um, you know, we would have been able to see where we'd been, where we were going, what the connections were. It would have put the whole cave in perspective, and it actually would have made it a lot more enjoyable uh, and it, it would have been easier and quicker to find our way out. And I think for many people, life is a little bit like getting lost in a cave without a map or without a blueprint. Uh, it's dark. It's confusing. You don't really know where you're going. You're sort of wandering around trying to make sense of everything. And you don't have a perspective on what's happening. So it's very beneficial for you and I to think about the big picture and about God's plans for the entire world and to try to fit our lives within that. And obviously, Scripture is wonderful about doing that for us. It gives us a map and a blueprint of the world from creation to new creation, and we can fit our lives within that. But when you think about life as a whole and you think about the big picture, one of the, the biblical phrases that has to be at the center of that discussion is the phrase, the kingdom of God. It's such a, an integral part of the Gospels, and it really helps us to think about God's plans for the earth and what he's doing. Um, and and we, as we think about that, we fit our lives within that, and it's very, very helpful. And so you learn about the kingdom, and as that's what we're doing in the Gospel of Mark, is we're thinking specifically over and over again about the kingdom of God and God's reign coming to the earth and what that looks like in the future. 
And so then we put our day-to-day lives in the midst of that, and we, it gives clarity, and it gives us a blueprint as to what's happening. And so we've been studying Mark chapter 4. If you're not there, you can turn there. And in this chapter, Mark is speaking about parables, okay? And I'll show you how this connects to the kingdom in just a second here. Mark is speaking about parables. Look at Mark 4 and verse 2. And he was teaching them, or Jesus is speaking in parables, sorry. He was teaching them many things in parables. So we've been studying the last couple weeks this one big parable. And if you remember, this helps us to understand all the other parables. Look down at verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And so this is going to give you the key to unlocking all the other parables. What is the subject generally of Christ's parables? Look back at verse 11. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so they understand more about the kingdom of God. And those outside don't understand it because they don't properly understand the parables. And so many of the parables that Jesus teaches, and you'll see that today, are about the kingdom of God. And each of these parables that we're going to look at today is going to help us to grasp better the true nature of God's kingdom. Because when you think about the kingdom, it's a little enigmatic, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to understand in some ways. It's here already in the ministry of Jesus, but it's not yet fully here even now. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? And these parables today are going to help us to understand that. And as we understand the nature of the kingdom better, then we can understand God's working in the world We can understand his sovereign reign over the world, and then we can fit our lives within that, and we can understand what our lives are to be about better. All right, so today we're going to see five blueprints of the kingdom, five blueprints of the kingdom, and these blueprints will encourage us, encourage our faith in God's plan. All right, five blueprints of the kingdom that encourage our faith in God's plan. All right, first of all, The kingdom is hidden to be revealed, okay? It's hidden to be revealed. As we've been studying Mark so far, I hope you've picked up on the amount of secrecy that has been tied to Jesus's ministry early on. It seems like he won't come right out and say who he is and what he's doing. I mean, he he sort of gets there and he'll, he'll talk about it, things as if he's you know, the son of God and he's the Messiah, but he's, he's sort of vague about it. He answers questions, you know, in a, in a subtle way, doesn't come right out and say it. I mean, we just seen the last couple of weeks that Jesus teaches in parables. And the reason he teaches in parables is to reveal the word to some who are given to understand it and then to conceal the nature of the kingdom in his ministry from others. So there is an aspect of a veiled nature to the ministry of Jesus. And it, it really does seem odd, if you, if you stop and think about it, it seems odd that Jesus would go to all this trouble to be incarnate, grow up as a man, live as a man for 30 years, come onto the scene to do his ministry, and then not really make things clear to people. I mean, why wouldn't he just come out and say who he is and announce who he is right off the bat and make it clear to everybody, why all the secrecy? Why the, the subtle way he's going about his ministry? Look at verse 21, Mark 4, verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, 
and not on a stand. And the point here is you don't light a lamp and then go put it under something, under a basket or under a bed. You light a lamp, obviously, to put it at the most convenient place in the house where it will give the most light to the most people. And so you don't put it under a basket. You put it on a stand in the center of the room or in the corner of the room so that it gives light to everybody. And so everybody can benefit the most from the lamp. Well, it's not accidental here that Jesus uses the word or the illustration of a lamp. In John chapter 1, he talks about, John talks about the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. In the Old Testament, a lamp refers to God sometimes, and sometimes it refers to the Messiah who is to come. And so it's not accidental here that Jesus uses the word lamp. And then if you look in verse 21, I don't know what your translation says. It says, is a lamp brought in? And actually that word should be come. So it should read like this. Does a lamp come? Well, it's the same word that talks about Jesus coming into the world. And so what he's talking about here is his arrival on the scene and the inauguration of the kingdom. Does all of that happen, he's asking, in order for it to be hidden? Why is this taking place? Why the secrecy? Look at verse 22. Here he explains it. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now, this is helpful. Why all the secrecy? Why does Jesus tell people that he heals not to spread it publicly? Why does he quiet the demons? Why doesn't he come right out and say it? Well, the purpose of this is it's going to be hidden in order that full disclosure would come later on. That's the principle to keep in mind here. Hidden in order to be revealed, in order to be manifested. Why is this the case? Well, if you think about the ministry of Christ, there are really two stages to the ministry of Christ. There's his humiliation, which is his incarnation and his death. And then there's his exaltation, which is his resurrection and ascension and enthronement at the right hand of God. Humiliation and exaltation. And the humiliation part of it is veiled in secrecy. But it has to be that way so that he can be fully disclosed and fully manifest when he's exalted. Listen to Philippians 2. I hope you can see the the end of that there. I'll read it to you. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. There's his humiliation by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, look what he says. Therefore, the humiliation takes place so that this can happen. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is the ministry of Jesus veiled? It's so that his humiliation can result in exaltation. And ultimately, that veil over his ministry during his incarnation, and even at his death in some ways, results in the light shining even brighter when he is exalted. Because now we see the full scope of his ministry, and we know exactly who he is. We see the arrival of the kingdom through him. You can think of it this way. 
When Bethany was first pregnant with Gray, our fourth child, as soon as we found out that she was pregnant, we didn't run out and begin telling everyone on the street that we were having another child. Instead, what we did was we kept it secret and we planned very carefully how we were going to reveal to everyone that we were having another kid. And so we did some very specific things. We let a few people know that so they could help us. And then we had this big reveal where we told people at our church and we told our families and all of that what was going on. And we were hiding the news for a while. We were keeping it secret for a while so that the reveal could be an even bigger deal. We wanted to make it public in the right way to the right people at the right time. And I think you can think about Christ's ministry and the kingdom in that way. It's hidden in order to be revealed. And so because of Christ's humiliation, because of what he went through in his incarnation and in his death, we see his glory even brighter. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We see his true character through his humiliation, through his incarnation. We see the beauty of his obedience to the father, don't we? Because his ministry was veiled, because he wasn't announced as the king over all the earth at the beginning. We see the beauty in his self-sacrifice as the son of God. We see the love that was demonstrated by the father for us through the death of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 tells us that. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see his love through, through his humiliation, through the hiddenness of his ministry. And none of that is possible without this veil over his ministry. It was put under a basket for a while in order to be revealed fully. That's the purpose. That's the way the kingdom works. And once again, when you see all of that glory or seeing all of that glory, that's dependent on how you respond. Look at verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And that takes us back to the parable we've been studying the last couple weeks. You have to have the right kind of soil to be able to see the glory of Jesus Christ. You have to listen well to understand the nature of the kingdom, that it's hidden in order to be revealed. And that brings us to our next blueprint, verses 24 and 25. The kingdom, the ministry of Christ, the arrival of God's reign through him is hidden to be revealed, and it has to be believed in order to be understood. So if you remember last time, we saw Jesus give the parable of the soils, And then in verses 10 and 11, look back in verse 10 specifically. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And so they come to him, they act in faith. They don't understand, but they come to Christ. They ask him in order to understand. And here in verses 24 and 25, we have another exhortation to us to listen so that you can receive further understanding. Look at verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Why? With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. 
At first here in verse 24, Jesus says, listen, you will get out of the parables what you put into them, right? With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But the beautiful thing here is about listening to the word of God and coming to God in faith and seeking to understand by believing what he says. The beauty is, is that when you do that, it's not just reciprocal. You don't just get out of it what you put into it. What he says here is that still more will be added to you. When you believe, when you submit yourself to the word and humbly come to the word of God and listen carefully, it's not just an equal payout. God lavishes that humility with grace upon grace and understanding of the kingdom and of Christ's work. Listen to the first part of verse 25. For to the one who has more will be given. And that's an amazing promise for you and I as we understand the word of God and as we listen to the word of God. But here's the scary part. Look at the rest of verse 25. For to the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If we don't believe in order to understand, if we don't listen humbly and properly to the word, even the surface level interaction with God's word will be taken away. We won't get it. We won't grow at all in our understanding of the word. We'll actually regress in understanding his kingdom. And that's the nature of the kingdom. It's believed in order to be understood. And so there's a compounding effect to how you come before God's word and how you seek to understand the the ministry of Christ. I'm not a golfer. I've never played 18 holes of golf. My brother is, and he's very good. And he tells me that when he plays regularly, you know, maybe once every couple weeks, it actually increases his ability. He's able to strike the ball better. He gets a lower score. But he said when he stops playing for six months, when he goes back out to play again, he's not stayed the same. He's actually regressed in his ability to play golf. And it's really frustrating the first couple times he goes out and starts to play again. That's a bit of a silly illustration, but I think that's how we work as human beings. And that's what God says here regarding interaction with the ministry of Christ, with his word and with the kingdom. What you put into it will be rewarded with grace upon grace. And if you reject God's word, even the surface level understanding that you have will be taken away. So the exhortation here is listen to God's kingdom parables with the intent to fit your life into God's plans and to understand what he's saying. Third, third blueprint here of the kingdom hidden to be revealed believed to be understood and the kingdom is progressing by the lord progressing by the lord and this is in verses 26 through 29 jesus gives us a short little story here this is what you typically think of when you think of a parable let me read it to you verse 26 and he said the kingdom of god is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's probably a familiar parable to you. And again, I think you can see how this is a little bit veiled. 
So you have to come to Christ for understanding. But here's, here's what I want you to notice about this parable. What's the main thing Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom here? Well, notice over and over again that he draws our attention to the inactivity of the farmer. Right? The inactivity of the farmer. What happens here? The man sows his seed in the ground and then he goes and sleeps. And he rises. And it just gives us this pattern of him getting up, going to bed, day after day. He's doing his thing. But it doesn't mention any interaction with the seed after that. In fact, it says at the end of verse 27, the seed sprouts and grows and he doesn't know how. He's not really done anything to interact with the seed. Then look at verse 28. It says the earth produces by itself. And then it goes through the various stages of the growth of this particular plant. And it says, this all happens on its own. The earth produces all of this. This man, this farmer is not doing anything to help this along. Now, those of you who garden, you understand this is not typically how it works, right? You don't don't just throw the seed in the ground and boom, there we go. We've got plants in a few months. That's not how it works. You have to weed the garden. You have to water the garden. You have to put fertilizer in the ground. There's a lot of things that you have to do to tend plants to help them to grow properly. But this parable here mentions none of that. In fact, it seems to say the opposite. This guy throws the seed in the ground and lo and behold, plants come later on. And the reason that it's, it's given to us that way is that Jesus wants to, us to understand and he compares the kingdom to this seed here this whole event that's happening because he wants us to understand the kingdom grows and makes progress apart from any or apart from human effort and it grows and makes progress by God's divine enablement it's all about what the Lord does here now if you were to look at the book of Acts read through the book of Acts you would see over and over again the word of God grows and makes progress And certainly there are people spreading the word of God. God uses people. But it's almost like the word of God is personified in the book of Acts. And it grows. Let me show you a couple of examples of that. Acts 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19.20, so the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's almost like a person is doing the work here. It's the word of God. And it's not that human beings are, are not involved in this at all. Of course, we have a role to play in this. But the point here of this parable is that God will accomplish his work when it comes to his kingdom and the spreading of his kingdom. His word will go forth and he will see to it that the word accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. And in many ways, the work is done behind the scenes without our knowledge. And that's so true. We spread the word, we give the word, and then we don't know what God does with it. And I think we'll be shocked some day when we realize the impact That scripture and the word of God has had on people apart from our knowledge. You know, it's pretty typical for people to talk today about the demise of the church, right? Oh man, things are going downhill. It's really bad. And I get it. 
it seems like in America that we're becoming increasingly secular. People will talk about how many churches are closing, you know, in the United States every year. And that's probably true. Some of those, it's probably good that they're closing. But lots of churches are being planted. There's a church planting movement going on right now in the United States that is seeing significant gains being made. And don't just think of the United States as the church. Think outside the United States. God's word is increasing at Acts, the book of Acts level proportions in South America and in Asia right now. Um, I was doing some reading. I've heard this before on China. And in 1949, when the communists took over China, there was estimated to be one million believers in China. Conservative estimates today have that number at 60 million believers. And some people will talk about it being way north of 100 million believers today in China. There's so many underground churches now in China that there's not even enough pastors and workers to keep up with the growth of Christianity there. And I think all of that is a testament to this reality here. The seed is sown, we go to sleep, And God does his work, and he's always going to do his work. God's word cannot be chained, cannot be held back. I love the fact that in China, when the communists took over, there was an all-out campaign to stop the Bible from spreading and to stop Christianity from spreading in that country. And I love that now Christianity is probably the largest religion in China in many ways. And there are passionate, devoted believers all over the place there. And that's because of this reality. This is what the kingdom is like. The word of God grows while we sleep. He does his work. And that should give us great confidence when it comes to the word of God and seeing the kingdom progress. And one day, all of that will be done. Look at verse 29. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because... The harvest has come. The kingdom grows. It's growing right now. People are being brought into the kingdom right now. And all of that grows by God's enablement. And it happens undetected most of the time by us. But when the harvest is ready, it's going to happen swiftly and according to God's plan. And so what you have here is a picture of the kingdom growing undetected by God's enablement. This parable focuses on the growth of the kingdom. The next parable focuses on the culmination of the kingdom. So, look here. Number four. Fourth blueprint of the kingdom. And again, what we're doing here is trying to describe the kingdom to you and the work of God in the world. It's hidden to be revealed through Christ's ministry. It's believed to be understood. It's progressing by the Lord. Fourth, it's insignificant. It has an insignificant beginning, but the ultimate culmination is that God's kingdom will be internationally renowned. Look at verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade." I'm sure you're familiar with this, the mustard seed, actually not the smallest seed in the garden, but one of the smallest and actually known during this time for being tiny. 
This was sort of its MO. It's a very tiny, tiny seed. And so Jesus uses it because everyone would understand this is something that's very, very small and very insignificant. And what he's describing here is a comparison to the kingdom. The kingdom, the ministry of Jesus initiating God's reign and his kingdom is is very small in its start. It's insignificant. It's nothing impressive. I mean, you think about Christ when he comes on the scene. He seems to be a traveling rabbi. And he's doing miracles. There's no doubt about it. He has a small band of devoted followers. He's going from place to place. But this is hardly an international movement that is happening here. The mustard seed, though, begins small. And over time, it grows and grows and grows And proportionally, it becomes this massive tree or shrub or plant. And even the birds of the air are able to make their nests in the branches of this plant. So the emphasis here is on the insignificant beginnings of the kingdom and then its growth toward its culmination and its renowned culmination. But one of the things that's interesting here I want you to look at is in verse 32... At the end of this verse, he talks about the branches becoming large. And then the last phrase he says is so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, that's not the first time that sort of language has been used to describe God's kingdom. In fact, there's a place in the Old Testament where that same language is used to talk about the Davidic kingdom. All right. This is in Ezekiel. Let me read this to you. Ezekiel 17. Thus says the Lord God. Here it's a cedar tree and not a mustard seed. All right. I will take my, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar. will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one. Now the cedar tree here is the line of Davidic Kings. And so God promises to take a branch from that line. Who do you think that might refer to? And look what he says. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And then verse 24. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, make high the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Now he uses a different illustration here, a cedar tree versus a mustard seed. And I think in some ways, you would think the kingdom should be compared to the cedar tree because it's very big and very noble and very tall. But in reality, when the kingdom arrives through Christ, it's not what we would expect, is it? And so that's why Jesus uses the mustard seed here. It's a less than noble plant, right? And it comes, but it grows huge and international. And he says the same thing is going to happen. The birds of the air are going to find their nesting in these branches of this kingdom. It's talking about the international reach of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not just about Israel. And even in the Old Testament, you can see this expectation here in Ezekiel 17 that it's going to expand. And it's going to go to all the nations. Every nation on earth. And you can see this come to fruition in Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. But the thing is, is that that international expectation that we see here in Revelation 5 that was predicted in Ezekiel that Jesus said, this is what's going to happen through my ministry. We don't see that right now, do we? The kingdom is, is in process of growing and progressing. We don't see God's worldwide perfect reign now. And so what that means for you and I is, is that we have to take these parables the expectation of these parables by faith. And we believe what God says here, and we embrace the blueprint of the kingdom that he's outlining for us here. And we say, this is what God's reign looks like. It's going to culminate in this international, magnificent reign and rule of God over the nations. And we believe that. And no matter how unremarkable it seems right now, we anticipate what's going to happen. And we trust that God is saving people. He's growing people by his word. He's building churches. And ultimately, this is the scene that we will find in Revelation 5. The harvest will come and people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be there. And so that gives us great confidence, I think, as we do our missions and ministry endeavors. God has people that he has planned to be there. And our responsibility is to go out, share the word, and he will save and he will bring them to this. That's what we do. So the first four of these blueprints, I think, give us a a picture of the kingdom that we don't often think about. But the question is, how do we actually enter that kingdom? How are we a part of this? By what means do we understand And do we enter into this? And that's our last blueprint. The kingdom is embraced through Jesus. It's embraced through Jesus. Look at verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. This really brings us full circle, doesn't it? You go back to chapter 4 and verse 2, and it said he taught many things to them in parables. He spoke to conceal, to some, to reveal, to others. The difference is the soil of your heart and how you listen. But the true path to understanding, the true path to being in the kingdom, to being a part of that multitude in Revelation 5, the true path is not to sit there and worry about the soil of your heart and go, is it good? Is it thorny? Is it rock hard? What's going on with the soil of my heart? Oh my goodness. It's not to turn your attention inward, but what it's to do, what you're to do is to turn your attention outward and embrace Jesus Christ. Look at the rest of verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. And then here's the beautiful part. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And that's why I say the the pathway into the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom is that you embrace it through Jesus Christ. And that goes right along with what Jesus says in verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. It's a gift and it comes, knowledge comes through the pathway of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 is helpful in this, I think, for us today. Therefore, as you're thinking about the blueprint of your life and how you navigate day-to-day decisions and day-to-day activities... 
And as you think about God's kingdom and the big picture of what's happening in his reign, it's progressing through his word. He's saving people. He's doing his work. As you think about that, here's how that comes to bear on our lives today. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. We are to walk in him. And if you've been in Sunday school, hopefully you understand a little better what that means. Our union with Christ life as a disciple means living in the constant awareness that I am in Christ. I am united with him. I rely on him for every aspect of my life. Being a disciple means I pursue a close proximity to Jesus. I want to be with him. We're rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith, according to this passage. So it's through Jesus that we make sense of life and of the kingdom and of God's plans for us and his purposes. It means growing more and more in your confidence of what Christ accomplished on the cross and how that applies to you. I love this quote, Samuel Rutherford, acquaint yourself with Christ's love and you shall not miss to find new gold mines and treasures in Christ. And I think the beauty of that is we're like, man, it's not that interesting. Jesus, it's just that there's not that much to it. Sometimes we think that. But as you dig more and more and as you search out, as you give yourself to him as verses 21 and 24 and 25 describe As you devote yourself to him, you'll find more and more beauty and gold mines of worth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's how you make sense of life. And that's how you understand his rule and reign. That's how you enter and embrace the kingdom. It's through Jesus Christ. So those are the five descriptions there of the kingdom here that Jesus gives. That's God's plan for the world. It's his movement in the world. It's what he's doing. His plan for creation to new creation, for his reign to come perfectly over the world. This is why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray your kingdom come. Because we're looking forward to this reality. So I would end today by just saying learn of God's big plans here. And what he's accomplished through Christ in inaugurating the kingdom. How that's progressing now and what that looks like in the future. And then seek to understand how your life fits into that rule and reign every single day. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are sovereign. That you rule over all. We pray that you would just continue to help us in the process of placing our lives within within the lines of scripture help us to fit how we're living this week within the story that the bible is telling give us the grace and the knowledge the ability to do that help us to come to you through jesus we so we so thank you for his work that he has accomplished on our behalf we ask that you would strengthen us even now as we as we take the lord's supper and we love you in christ's name we pray amen